All right, grab your Bibles, turn them to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to jump into verses 22 through 39 uh, this morning. Before we do, uh, the reason that um, I'm going here is we're kind of skipping over Christmas because if we're going to be in Luke a lot, we maybe go back to Luke for Christmas. And uh, one of the things that I believe that most people are probably cu- a little curious Christmas and uh, when Jesus turns about 30 years old. And the truth is, is we don't have a lot of information about that. We basically like what we kind of kind of know about Jesus. We'll celebrate Christmas. We'll celebrate the birth. We know that he was born in Bethlehem in a stable. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, he's a full grown man and he's making decisions for ministry and he's going about his life. And what we do know about Jesus as a young baby or a young man, the little bit that like I kind of told you last week, you'll, you'll read what are called kind of the Gnostic gospels of Jesus. And he'll talk about Jesus as a boy or as a young man. And it's just really weird, crazy stuff. Um, it's kind of out of character uh, for what we know uh, about Jesus. And if you look at the text, those things are written like a couple hundred years after uh, Jesus's life, death and resurrection. And so basically it's all kind of made up. So what we do know, we have in the book of Luke. And so what we can learn uh, about Jesus and his parents and he, when he was young, uh, we discover in Luke's gospel. And so I, I want us to look at Uh, Jesus being dedicated at the temple. So we're going to look at the dedication of Jesus at the temple. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Here we go. And it says, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, uh, I want you to kind of underline they here because they is going to be important for us, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So who's they? Who's they? Here they are Jesus's parents. What are they doing? They are going to the temple. What do we learn about them at this point? And they at this point, still a baby. And what we have here are Jesus's parents. They are traveling to the temple. They're traveling from Bethlehem to Jerusalem uh, to basically here. This is kind of a summary of two different things that both Mary and the parents were kind of required to do, but not together. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, after the birth of a child. After the birth of a child, a Hebrew woman was supposed to go to the temple for what would be called a time of purification. Well, why would she need to go to the temple for a time of purification? Well, I don't know if you have ever experienced the birth, but I'm about to get myself in trouble. I'm just going to do it. I don't care. Um, it's Valentine's Day. Why not, right? I already took her out through, uh, Friday, so we're good. So... Like, one of the crazy things about birth, after every time, this kind of, except for my daughter who was born at home kind of like unexpectedly, every time my wife is always like, man, wasn't that beautiful? Right? 
I mean, the, the results are beautiful. You have this baby, right? If everything turns out right, right you know, and, and thankfully, like if, if the baby lives, right? It's, it's beautiful because now you have this child and especially in uh, the ancient world, I mean, uh, a birth, not only was it messy as it still is today, but it's also very dangerous and so forth. And so well, the, the law required a woman after about 40 days if she gave birth to a male to come for a time of purification and worship before the Lord. Now, why? Why, I, why they're called to do this, like specifically in Leviticus. But what I do know is that it was required of Hebrew women for them to go do that. And so this is what Mary has set out to do. She's decided that I'm, I'm going to be true to what God has called me to do in Leviticus to come for this time of purification and to submit what basically is kind of this holy book, which has been in the, 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 the Leviticus. It says what it is, is it's, it's a book about the holiness of God and calling us to be holy and pure before God. And she, she is going to do that. Also wrapped up in this, account here is the dedication of Jesus. And so they also are bringing Jesus for this time of dedication, where again in Exodus, we're told in Exodus 13 that any child, any firstborn child should be dedicated to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel, we see this as well, that there's this dedication that is expected to anyone who, especially a boy, who is born first. Now, why would that be the case? Well, simply to show especially when it comes to the firstborn sons in this culture and in this time, the sons were responsible to kind of after uh, 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 the uh, adults have, have kind of grown older, the sons were the ones who were going to carry on the family name. They're the ones who are going to, the, the family is going to follow after. So what it is, is showing that our family belongs to the Lord. That God is over all of who we are, including our firstborn, who will be over our family someday and over his family and so forth. Does that mean that God's in the Genesis and Exodus? You realize right away that, if the, that, that God has no problem recognizing the second or third or just last born child. But what it is trying to show is the dedication that the family should have to God himself. What we should learn from this are kind of two things by, that, that I kind of want us to take away from this for what we're going to get when we get to the application here. Simply this is what we learn is that Joseph's parent, or they are taking Jesus to be dedicated. But what we should see is the dedication that they have to God for a few reasons. One of the reasons is that this process only requires Mary. Mary is the only one who needs to go to the temple for a time of purification. Joseph doesn't have to be there, but Joseph goes with her. Neither does Joseph have to be there. Jesus doesn't even have to be there for this. When you would go to the temple uh, to dedicate, kind of for a time of dedication, and so just kind of pay and, pay and tell them, like, hey, I had a firstborn child. We are going to dedicate them to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. Here's kind of part of the temple tax, or here's what we're going to give to the temple. And then you can go back home. But both Joseph and Mary, it's they here, they travel about five and a half miles by foot or by animal, however they got there from Jerusalem to or from Bethlehem to Jerusalem with a 40 day old so or so child to get him to the temple. An example of how pious they were, how dedicated they were to doing what God has called them to do and to doing it together. The second thing we learn about Jesus and his family is that they were relatively poor. Uh, there, there were kind of basically two 
two sacrifices that were, were asked um, depending on your financial situation here. If you were wealthy or if you were more well off, maybe middle class to upper middle class, what you would have brought for an offering is you would have brought a lamb and the lamb would have been your offer, by the way, to instead sacrifice a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons or to give that sort of offering. So Jesus is born into a poor family here. Now, Jesus probably wasn't born into abject poverty, but we know he was poor. We don't think he was born into abject, abject poverty because what we know a little bit, what we know about Joseph is that he was a, a carpenter. And so they probably, as they got older, um, similar to maybe even how sometimes families work in our economy, they, he, he probably would have risen to like lower class or middle or, or middle lower class um, status here. And so we learn this about Jesus, and the story continues as he's being dedicated here in verse 25. We're going to be introduced to another man, and it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before, the Lord had seen, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Holy Spirit into the temple. So a few things here. Simeon here is now uh, kind of the, the main character in the story as it continues. And what we learn about Simeon, again, is that he is a righteous and devout person. So is, he's in the temple, and this description is somebody of some, uh, who is very spiritually sensitive, uh, you see the Holy Spirit mentioned a number of times, and you see the Holy Spirit here. We know that Simeon is, a, is an older gentleman. Uh, we can tell this a few different ways. One is because of this idea, he's, you know, he's thinking about death. Here in a few moments, we'll see another verse where he says, like, basically, now that I've met Jesus, I can die. Um, and, and so we can assume that he's fairly older. Uh, something else we should assume is that he's merely an ordinary man. This is not a priest. This is not a pastor. This is an ordinary man in the temple being responsive to the Holy Spirit at this point in time. And he's an ordinary man, though, who relies on God. One of the things that we should see here is that God is at work in all of this as well. So Simeon has been brought to the temple here. He's at this place right now because... He had come in the spirit. And so God is at work in this situation, uh, working in Mary and Joseph, having brought Jesus and having come into contact in a minute, but we need to know where it's going to happen too. It's happening in the temple. Now, I highlighted temple here for you because there's a couple different words for temple uh, that are used in the Greek to describe which part of the temple people are actually at. The place where Simeon and the baby Jesus here and his parents are at is important for us to know. This word used for temple is kind of the outer courts for temple. And so the, the further in you get, the more likely you're going to come in contact with the Holy of Holies. The further out you get, uh, kind of those who may be considered maybe even less holy or less able to, to go in there. So there are different courts to the temple. This word for temple was the word used for the outer courts. Well, who was in the outer courts? The people in the outer courts of the temple were uh, women and Gentiles. They were women and foreigners at this point. So Simeon is uh, uh, about to give a word of, on Jesus here, but as he does, we need to reckon foreigners. And so here's what kind of happens next here. 
And when the parents brought him or brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, so uh, Mary and Joseph are on their way in. Look what happens. He took him up in his arms. Now, I just love this. Uh, this is Mary and Joseph. They're walking into the temple and some random old man takes their child from them. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. And so I'm just going to tell everyone in here, um, don't take somebody's culture. But this is what's going on. Like this random guy that they unlikely maybe have ever met now takes Jesus. He takes Jesus up into his arms here and blesses God and said, so what does he say about Jesus? This is him prophesying over God. It's him speaking God's word, a word of encouragement over Christ, telling them who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. This is why we know he's old father. God, now that I've seen this, I, I can die. According to your word, he believes that what he is seeing now and what he is holding, who he is holding, is God's word being played out throughout history as he looks at this child, as he continues to speak. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, uh, what does that mean to see your salvation? We talk about salvation a lot in the church. But what does it mean? Well, in the book of Luke, we see uh, it's spoken about a father, and he's, he is praying kind of in the spirit, and he's talking about what salvation is, and he's talking about this idea of deliverance, and he gets to the end of his prayer in chapter 1, verse 77, and he kind of sums it up with this idea that all of Israel, all of God's, God's people are, are going to experience the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that's kind of what salvation means there in that sense. And so Zechariah is saying that all these people who are, are carrying around kind of this, this bond on God and then doing the very things that they knew they shouldn't do, do, living in their shame, living in their bondage, God is going to forgive them. And God is preparing a way now so that they might be forgiven and might not live in their shame and may not live with the burden of believing that, that you won't be forgiven for everything that you have done in the past or even collectively has done as a group of people, that somebody is going to bring the forgiveness of sins. In this chapter, let me get this right here. Um, you know what? I didn't write it down, but it's the, the story of Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus, what we see is we see at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, we see this idea that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. Well, who is this Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is a wealthy man who basically has likely become greedy and corrupt and has ruined his life on the way that he has behaved and acted. And so he's, he, he might seem like he has it all together. He might, he might seem like he has cast. Nobody likes him. And um, he's at this point probably in his life where he's like, well, look, even, if I, even if I change my life, even if I change my life, like, will anybody care? Will anybody accept me? Will, will it make a difference? And Jesus shows up and he looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, get down from the tree. Come here. Come with me. And Jesus has a talk with him. He's like, you know what? I'm ready to repent. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to restore what I've taken from other people. I'm ready to change somebody who is struggling, somebody who is an outcast. And Jesus shows up. And he's for them and he wants them to change and he gives them the courage to change. Jesus says, I'm not going to cancel you because of everything you've done in the past. I agree that you're lost. I agree that you're doing things that you should not do. 
but come to me and I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to give you the opportunity to repent and change your life around. And so this is this idea of salvation and Jesus is the one who is going to bring it. And who is he going to bring it to and for? Well, Simeon's of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So remember, he is saying this in front of Gentiles. He's saying this in front of all the ethnic groups that have come from around the world to worship God. That's what that word is in the Greek. It just means it's esnos, es, ethnos. It means all the ethnic groups from around the world. And so they are hearing this. And so Jesus is for everyone, is what, Zach, was what Simeon is trying to make clear here. This is who he's from. And these people are hearing it. And so, so who is going to bring salvation to all peoples and salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. We say that this is going to be done according to his word. Now, this is God's plan from the very beginning for all of the earth to be, to be drawn to the God of Israel, to be drawn to God himself, Abraham, God's a person that God starts his people with was promised that he would be a blessing to all people, but we're not really seeing it at this point. And then Isaiah, you get into the prophet Isaiah and it's really interesting all people, but in Isaiah 49, six, what we're told is there's going to be a specific, a specific servant that is going to be a light to the nations that will reach to the ends of the earth, that the ends of the earth will want to come to him, that they'll be drawn to him. And Simeon is saying that this, this is the servant right here. And he goes on to say, for the glory of your people, Israel. Now, Jesus was a Jew. This is how it thought about the fact that we worship a Jewish person. We worship a person from Israel. And if you were to get on the map and if you were to look at a globe, I, I mean, Israel is like a dot on the globe. It really is. I mean, it's super insignificant. It's about the size, I think it's about the size of Rhode Island. Maybe I could be wrong about that, but it's small. It, it's really small. And the entire, like a third of the world, not the entire world, the entire world almost knows about Jesus at this point, not every point, who came from a country like, like super small. And what Simeon is saying, this is going to be our glory. This, this child, this servant, here. And so he's drawing attention to that. He's saying too to them that this is how, this is how God is going to keep his promise to accomplish all of what he has promised to do through Israel as well. And that Israel, their job is actually going to be to make sure that the Gentiles, that the entire world knows about this servant. It's taking place as Simeon is saying, our, our, the glory of our country, the glory of everything that God has begun to do through us, the glory that God had promised us from the very beginning is right before us. And it's now our job to make sure that all the peoples know about this. And this has become our mission to make sure that the people know about the salvation that is going to be through this child here. Now, I believe this is now the mission of the church. And we'll talk about that here in a minute, but let's continue in verse 33. And as far they've heard about the, they've heard the angels tell them uh, everything um, at the birth, they've had the wise men show up, or I guess the wise men are probably going to show up sometime after this. But they've, they've had these pronouncements, but they're still, they're still just kind of amazed at what is going to come from the child. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So, so Simeon, Israel's mission is going to be accomplished through this child, 
through this baby. And then he tells Mary specifically here, speaking probably to Mary specifically as uh, she looks at her child, that this mission will actually be opposed. It'll be opposed. That there's going to be some division caused. And this division is going to cause a rise and fall in many. And where is it going to cause that? It's going to cause it in Israel. It's going to cause countrymen. It'll cause division there. It'll also cause division in her own soul also. So it'll cause corporate division and it'll cause uh, um, a personal division, like division within yourself. So what does this mean? Jesus is going to divide a nation. Uh, Simeon is kind of teeing them up for what is going to happen with Jesus. Uh, Do you realize that most Jewish people don't worship Jesus? This is, this is what Simeon is predicting here, is that Jesus is going to be the Savior for everyone, and he's going to call his own people to worship him, but there's actually going to be division among his own people. And, and by the way, when it talks about this national division going on here, this is not a political division happening. This is going to be a division based on their de- dedication or their devotion to Jesus and his teachings. People are going to have to decide, am I going to continue uh, to not to his teaching? Am I going to be devoted to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Am I going to be devoted to the church? And what is being predicted here is that this new movement that is going to come out of Jesus and his resurrection and the movement of the Holy Spirit is going to cause division because there's going to be a new movement called the church here. And people are going to have to decide whether to join it or not. And so there's going to be that division. And then Simeon speaks directly to Mary. And here's what he says. There will be actually opposition in your own soul also. Like personally, Mary, you're, you're going to struggle with your own child. Why? So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So what Jesus is telling Mary is not only will your countrymen start to divide but you will struggle yourself internally with what Jesus is going to do, what he's going to say, and who he's going to be. Because I think Simeon knows what we all know to be true. If you've ever actually read Jesus' teaching, if you've ever come in contact, even with the scriptures or whatever that might be themselves, is that they'll act like a mirror. And what Jesus does through his teaching and what the Bible does in general is it shows us our own hearts. It shows us our own souls and it shows us the trouble that we have when we come into contact with God and who he is and his teaching. And so what we see here is kind of a wrestling takes place. It's going to take place between Mary and what happens with anybody who takes God's call, God's teaching seriously is a wrestling is a struggle but God did you really say that God do you really want me to do that I'm reminded of the story of Jacob Jacob is one who is known as the person who wrestles with God God is trying to get him on wrestles with God and he wrestles with God all night long and he's not going to kind of give up wrestling with God and God wrenches his hip, but he just still holds on to God. He says, I'm not going to give up until you bless. Like, I'm not going to give up until I understand what you're doing in my life and what you want me to do. And 
so he just, he just wrestles with God there. Why does he wrestle with God? Or why does he even need to wrestle with God? Well, he needs to wrestle with God because his life needs to be transformed. And in the same way, all of our, all of our hearts need to be transformed is the way in which our hearts are transformed, in which our hearts need to change. And what Simeon says is our rise or fall will depend on that. Our fall will depend on whether or not we allow Jesus to transform our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Jacob becomes Israel. Israel actually means one who wrestles with God or the one who struggles with God. And in a way, you kind of read the story, you're like, did Jacob win or lose? Because he kind of, until you bless me, then you read about the story and he walks away with this limp. And I would say the winning part is that he's never, he never stopped wrestling. Like he never stopped trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? But he also lost. I mean, he's the one who walks away with a limp. The angel doesn't walk away with any limp. The angel is not harmed to those, but there's also a paradox. And if we, if, if, if we want to follow Jesus, we win by losing. We win by losing. We win by allowing God's teaching to change our hearts, which aren't as good as everybody makes, you, makes them out to be if we take Jesus seriously. This is why Jesus says you must die to self and take up your cross. A difficult thing to do. But that is how we will rise. We're going to receive the teachings of Christ. And it goes on here, and this story continues. And we come in contact with a prophetess. prophetess, um, And there's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in many years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping uh, with fasting and prayer day and have um, this woman. Go to the next verse. Go to the next verse. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So now we have this woman we're introduced to as Jesus comes to the temple. She uh, basically is speaking over his life and celebrating his life as well. But we're told about this woman is that her husband died when she was very young. And so she's probably, I think, about 84 in this situation, has been widowed uh, somewhere for around 60 to the Lord. And I, I don't know about you, but some of you, you might get to the point in your life where you're thinking about, like, I've, I've really been serving the Lord. I've been giving to the Lord. I've been doing all of, all of these things. And you wonder if it's, if it's all worth it, if it's all worth it. You wonder if you're going to look back on your life and go, like, it wasn't worth it. And we see here a woman who is in the temple. She's praying and she's fasting and she's doing the work of the Lord. And God honors that by a lot has done for me. I I can see what God has done for me and I can see what God is going to do for other people. It could not have been easy to remain a widow for 60 something years, especially in this first century where in reality, most of your income and most of your help would have come from the work of a man. It would have been really easy just to be bitter. It would have been really easy to just say, you know what? I regret this, but she looks back and she's looking at Jesus here. She looks back on her life and now, and she's encouraging this young family who is in front of her. 
So this is the dedication of Jesus. This is what takes place. So a few application points for us this morning. Like, what does this mean for us? Well, in general, the, church, the mission of the church is still, right, to carry out, believe, and make sure that people know about who Jesus is, what Simeon has to say about Jesus, that he is the one who brings salvation to the ends of the earth. How do we do it uh, while looking at this text and reflecting on what took place? I think two ways. First is this, is to remember that your spiritual growth and your public witness are dependent on your dedication to Jesus. Jesus is the one taken to the temple to be dedicated, but our spiritual growth, our life, And our public witness is dependent on our dedication to Jesus. What we have here is very simple. We have two parents taking Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. They go above and beyond of what is required. Bethlehem and even gotten past, like gotten out of the purification uh, uh, um, uh, ritual that needed to take place at the temple. I, I, I don't know all of that. It's hard to kind of figure out if how much of that took place. But that's not happening. Instead, we have two who are devoted, who go to the temple. We know they're poor and they're still going to give. They're they're, they're still going to do what God has required of them. Although it's not convenient. It's five and a half miles away uh, and they're going to get there. We have two older people who were told, though, that they spent their lives or they dedicated their lives to righteous living. These are people who, as they get to the end of their lives, we see that they had been longing for and that they had been trusting God with their life. These two people, by the way, as we read what we just read today, are, are, have supplied the spiritual food that I hope that we are getting this morning because of their righteousness and because of their devotion to God. And so we look at all of this, and I don't think it's difficult for us to understand that we too are called to be dedicated to God. Every Christian, every follower of Christ is called to be dedicated. And so a real question for us all to think about this morning is what does it take for us not to be dedicated? What does it take for us to just take the easy route out? To take the wide road? Is it a tough question from a family member or friend? A late night? Bad weather? About to get some of that. Countercultural teaching from Jesus? The possibility of financial loss. What does it take? We just read a story of Jesus' parents' devotion and the devotion of Simeon and Anna. Or what would people say if they were reading your story? Uh, Would they read it as a story of devotion? Your story is a light to others. And whether you like it or not, like people are reading your story. If you have kids, they're reading your story. They're watching you. They're, they're, they're watching your every, you claim to be devoted, right? Would, if they looked at your life, would you really be devoted? Would your, would your life story, would your life story point them to the salvation found in Jesus? Or would it point them somewhere else? Simeon tells us, that our rising and that our falling will be dependent on our devotion to Jesus. 
and the rising and falling of others also likely will be dependent Second thing we learn is that Jesus will be divisive, but I must not be. Jesus will be divisive, but I must not be. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus frees us from needing to be divisive. And we need that freedom right now. The world, our, our country, all is becoming a very divisive place. We are continually finding ways to divide. But the problem with humanity, we've done this all throughout human history, is that the ways that we divide are not good and they are not healthy and they are not the way that Jesus will or would divide. We typically, we want to divide over ethnicity. We want to divide over sex. We want to divide over age. Those are the areas that humanity has historically always focused on dividing over. But we learn a number of things, four things here, that I think should keep us from doing all of that about Jesus the first is we must remember that Jesus was poor and he was ordinary. That basically he was nothing to look at. We know that he was born into a poor family and he identified with the poor from a very early age. We know that he cared about the poor, that he healed the poor. And Philippians, Paul tells us that for our sake, Jesus became poor. And even if Jesus, his family did fairly well for themselves as Joseph grew, maybe his business and so forth in his ministry, Jesus literally gave that up and lived what was a fairly simple life. And so Jesus was not well off. And so those of us who do fairly well for ourselves, or if you do fairly well for yourself, don't get any ideas about me, I don't know. But like, you should remember this. The, the wealthy need to remember that Jesus was poor, that Jesus identified with the poor. And the poor should remember that Jesus didn't hate the rich at times if they were corrupt. He did. He had no problem with doing that. But be careful not to divide for this reason. One of the uh, psychologists I heard one time was just talking about economic theory. And he said what often happens even uh, in, as people kind of maybe um, move uh, from um, uh, maybe uh, being poor to, or people sometimes hate, sometimes the poor them instead of actually loving the poor. And so you kind of kind of destroy your own uh, economy and community and country because of that. It's not actually out of a love. There should not be division here. So Jesus was poor and ordinary. Secondly, an older man and older woman make a pronouncement to the younger man and the younger woman. So those who praise and worship Jesus should not divide by age, but honor the older generation who are committed to encourage the younger church. Uh, we, we shouldn't pit those two uh, groups against each other. And I would just tell you, there's, there is nothing better. There, there is nothing better to watch somebody who is older 
encourage somebody who is younger. And there's nothing better, I think, from what I can tell when I talk to our senior citizens, when they see a younger person who is completely on fire and sold out for God. Well, often we get the older is opposed to change, but what I've discovered, if the younger want to make a change and if the younger are really completely devoted to God, completely devoted to Jesus, that the older will go along with it and encourage them. If they see devotion really shown and that both are mutually encouraged through that, actually. Yes, there may be a little bit of a struggle on the front end, but if it takes place like that, it's a beautiful thing and the church thrives. Announcement, this pronouncement that's being made about Jesus uh, come from both a man and a woman where women could hear the pronouncement, the prophecy made about Jesus. So the church also should be careful not to divide by sex or even take one sex more seriously than the other. We can argue about whether or not women should be ordained pastors or whatever. So like in our church, we're egalitarian in the sense that we believe that women can be pastors. Uh, we have people in here who would prefer that not be the case. And that's fine. Like you're, you're welcome here. Uh, and those are debates that we can have. I went to seminary with people who are complementarians. They're my friends. I read what they write and what they do. I listen to their sermons, all great uh, qualities to have um, or biblical, even biblical arguments to have. But what we clearly have here is both a man and a woman providing our spiritual food this morning as we read in the Bible. And I want to caution you not to take me more seriously all the time than Pastor Mindy. Or not to allow somebody like Pastor Mindy to speak into your life, to lead you, to lead your children, and to help you to follow Jesus Christ. Because we see it here in the text as well. Fourth, the dedication of Jesus takes place in the section of the temple where foreigners can hear to the Gentiles. So Jesus will be revealed to all the ethnic groups. And so it's fairly clear. Those who worship Jesus should not divide by nationality or ethnic identity. That's not okay to do. And so one of the things, this means a few things for us as a church. One of the things it means is that missions is very important for us. Foreign missions remain important. We must pray. We must send to the earth to share the gospel with those who don't know the gospel, to help the poor in areas and places that are not next door. The attitude that I am just obligated to reach my neighbor or to help people who are a part of my country or my people is not an attitude of Jesus Christ. It's just not. It's, it's clear. This is, this is the mission of Jesus, is to go to all the earth and be for all the people. So we must be for all the people. You must. So if you're like not somebody who cares about foreign missions, and you're saying, I'm just not called to that. No, you're called to it. You're just ignoring it. Like, I'm sorry. You're called to it. You may do most of your ministry locally, which is fine, right? 
But you are called to be a part of who are not your next door neighbor. Similarly, on the other side, you are also called to love your neighbor. So you can't just say, well, I only care about missions. I'm only going to support foreign missions. I'm only going to send people that, to places and people that I don't know. Potentially, like if that's you, maybe you don't love your neighbor. Maybe you don't want to do the hard work of loving the person who's next door or just down the door or in the next community neighbor and go to the nations. That's, that's the job and the work of the church. Everybody needs to hear the good news of Jesus and we all should be for it. We, Jesus is for all ethnic groups and all people and desires to bring all people together. So what this also means for us to a certain extent uh, I'm just going to call us in and to count, make us all a little uncomfortable here is the lack of diversity and division in the evangelical church is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And what I mean by evangelical church, I mean, those who believe this message, those not, not like a voting group a voting block. That's how the world defines evangelicalism. Let's define it. How it was defined by the people who started it by the actual meaning of the word. Evangelical means the gospel. The idea is that we believe that the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. We need to share what God has done. That's what it means to be an evangelical. Somebody who wants to share, somebody who's been converted to Christ, who believes that Jesus is Lord, who who believes that you're saved by grace through faith, who is pious like Jesus' parents and believes in the authority of scripture. Those who actually claim that, like the American church that claims that, we are not diverse when it comes to worship services. We're not. We, we, we kind of had divide, we have divided, we're making inroads right now, but we have divided throughout history. Some of it has been intentional, some of it has been unintentional throughout our history. It is getting better. And we can't just snap our fingers and make it, diff- make it different or to change it right now. But we can't be afraid to try. We can't be afraid of being accused of being too woke right now by trying. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a pastor who goes along with everything right now that the cult solutions aren't that great at, at this time either. But we have to try to come up with some of our own and we have to be having conversations and we have to deal with this unpleasant reality in the church. So whether you're afraid of being too woke or not woke enough, whatever it is, this is something that the church has to work to try to change. We have to make sure that we are making a difference to show that everybody belongs to the church and we're willing to worship be devoted and dedicated to Jesus Christ. So how do we, how do we remain dedicated? Because it's difficult. It's hard. It'll pierce our own soul. Feel uncomfortable right now? (laughs) We do it. Anytime I talk about being dedicated to Jesus, we do it because he is more dedicated to us than we are to him. It's something I believe about Jesus. He is more dedicated to us, always been. And thank God, right? Thank God. How do we know that? Jesus went to the cross and died. He became poor. I'm not poor, right? I'm not poor. Jesus became poor. So that just he would identify with me, but so he, he, would, he would identify with people who are poor. 
people that are looked down upon. He loves them. He loves me. He goes to the cross. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. Why? So that I could be with him. And what has he done? He's given us the Holy Spirit. You, like Simeon, can be guided by the Holy Spirit. You can live a, a Holy Spirit-filled life. If you live a life dedicated to him, like that will happen. God will do things in your life. It will be like, that was hard. I don't know if I wanted to do that. But you'll look back and you'll see like God was at work. And God is at work in your life. And if you dedicate your life to him, he's going to continue to be at work. And you're going to look back like Simeon and Anna and go, it's worth it. It was worth it. And your children, your grandchildren, whatever. I don't know if they're going to be Christian. I have no idea if they're going to decide to follow Christ. But one thing I do know, because I do funerals, is that someday they're going to come and they're going to be at your funeral and they're going to talk to the pastor and they're going to tell them about your life. And they're going to, you, that pastor is going to know and they're going to know whether or, not what you're, whether or not your story communicated that Jesus was Lord, Jesus was Savior, Jesus was good, and that your life was worth dedicating to him. And they will have to, compl- they will have to con- contemplate whether or not they want to dedicate their lives to Jesus as well. Our witness is dependent on our dedication to Jesus. But it's not without us knowing that he is more dedicated to us than we are to him. And believing that that Jesus is dedicated to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the story, and I pray that this story changes and transforms our own hearts and our own lives at this time. I pray that if our own souls right now are feeling divided, and if we're feeling struggle at all within ourselves, that you would just guide our hearts and minds by your spirit, that you would allow us to make any changes that need to be made, that you would lead us in devotion. Maybe show us areas of our life where we haven't completely given to you. Areas in our thought life. What part of our minds have we not given to you? Physically, Father, where have we decided not to serve you or not to do? Maybe where we've decided to hold something back from you. I pray over those who have decided already to follow Christ and be dedicated to him. I pray, Father, that you would lead us into a further dedication, further commitment. And there are others who may be trying to be decide or maybe trying to decide whether or not they want to dedicate their lives to Jesus at this time. I pray that they would know that you love them, 
that you desire to walk with them, to be with them, that you want them to rise. Yes, it'll, it means that they give their lives, their entire lives to you, Father, but that it's worth it. I pray that if they are holding back because they believe that they need to be good before they come to you, that that is not the case, that you will make them good, that you will forgive them, that you will teach them. And I pray that they will know that they have a community and church that will walk alongside of them. Father, we love you. We thank you. As in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.